This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Jack Hazelwood. He's a researcher focused on Hong Kong. He's lived there most of his life, but right now he's not in the country. I think that's important because the speed at which the CCP's so-called national security laws are scooping people up in Hong Kong and arresting them is uh, getting quite bad. So we're going to be talking about that today, why the CCP has put these laws in Hong Kong and why some people are saying that this is the death of Hong Kong as a free society. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider subscribing to our Patreon. Keep us moving. Uh, Patreon.com slash Popular Front. I want to I want to talk about what's been going on in, uh, in Hong Kong in the last, I don't know, let's say like six weeks, maybe a little bit less than that or maybe a bit more rather, um, it seems like, you know, China has basically got its stranglehold on the region now. Um, maybe, maybe just go over what has been going on there. Yeah, so um, it started obviously with the national security law, um, which was um, implemented a couple of months ago now. And subsequently, um, it almost feels like most days we're getting like sort of a month's worth of news and developments, like literally in the next sort of 24 hour periods, um, multiple people being arrested, including like two people I know personally. Um, it's, you know, it, it's sort of, it's, it's like they've basically just decided to sort of export um, all of the sort of normal security practices and they're just their normal sort of, you know, what you might say like modus operandi in the mainland just, it's just been almost in like the space of, a couple of weeks it's now fully taken over hong kong and uh yeah and it's it's obviously here to stay as well and what are these laws they're they're really quite complicated right yeah so the national security law itself um it has it concerns like four categories of offenses so it's sedition secession terrorism and collusion with foreign forces and it's the final one that's the most kind of like ambiguous and deliberately ambiguous and it's the one that's likely to catch most people out um so basically um there is very little sort of guidance in the actual full text of it as to what it actually means but judging from the arrests they've made so far um collusion with foreign forces could potentially mean you've met with you know u.s politicians to discuss hong kong affairs um it could be to do with sort of fundraising overseas for pro-democracy um, organisations and stuff. Um, it's it's sort of inviting any anything to do with sort of like, you know, contact you have with someone abroad. If it's in any way, shape or form political, you're potentially liable to be charged, basically. Um, and yeah, it, it just, it, it, you know, no one is really safe from it at all. It, it's it, They will apply this to anyone and everyone they want, which is basically why it's so sort of uh, people are so terrified of it. And they started enacting it right away, didn't they? Uh, yeah, so there were, um, you know, they didn't waste too long. There's only, I think the, the number of arrests is only in the sort of teens so far. Um, I think we're up to like 12, 13 or something. Um, but, you know, um, it's important to say as well, they tried this uh, 17 years ago in 2003 uh, and it was met with the most 
you know, re- unbelievable backlash. Um, you know, at the time, Hong Kong's largest protest in history, half a million people on the streets, etc., etc. And they dropped the plans almost immediately because they just weren't expecting the public backlash. But basically, sort of as the pandemic hit and the protests died down for now, they basically have been just mulling this for sort of uh, pretty much, I suppose, since the protests began. But the pandemic's provided them with you know the perfect cover for it. I mean, it's still you know, even now, like you know, it's 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 a massive risk for them to do it in terms of how it's going to play out long term. But it has to be said that the timing was perfect. I mean, if ever there was a time to do it, it's right now. You know, they've got they've they've got the timing nailed down to a T. But um, I mean, long term, how this is going to play out is, I mean, to talk about playing with fire is a you know massive understatement. It it really in terms of what it will do to people, how it will change protests, etc. in Hong Kong. Because, I mean, peaceful protest now has just been outlawed, essentially. They will never, probably never be given permission for a mass march ever again, um, which, you know, has huge consequences, especially because the only other form of, like, peaceful resistance that people could sort of practice in Hong Kong is voting in elections, which have been, you know, suspended, i.e. cancelled for an entire year. And uh, they're going to basically, by the look of things, keep every Democrat off the ballot paper. So, as I say, all sort of forms of peaceful, um, peaceful protest resistance to the CCP have literally just been completely and utterly outlawed now. And that has massive sort of consequences down the line. Mm. And there was this footage where basically people were being dragged physically out of the LegCo building um, I think it was uh, like democracy opposition people were literally being carried out by security. What was going on there? Yeah, so that was actually um, concerning um, the one of the sort of subcommittees um, that are formed. Like it's the same with like um, every sort of parliament legislature across the world. Um, and basically the pro-Beijing chair of that committee was refusing to vacate her position um, in violation of like procedure, etc. But of course, the um, the people who hold like the equivalent of like Speaker of the House, etc. in um, in Legco are all pro Beijing. And essentially, what happened is uh, pro democracy legislators basically tried to force her out of her seat physically, uh, and they were just completely manhandled and assaulted by security, um, and you know dragged out. Um, there have been sort of similar-ish scenes to do with the national security law and the national anthem law when they were being passed, but the, sort of, the ones that you're thinking of and the, the ones that kind of got flashed across the world were to do with that. Um, and yeah, like uh, several pro-democracy legislators were actually hospitalised because of that. It was just crazy. Right, and a lot of people have been uh, leaving Hong Kong, right? Um, UK has some kind of deal or something for people fleeing. Um, tell us about that. I've not really looked at it too closely. Yes, yeah, so it's it's absolutely massive. So um, basically, when the um, joint declaration was signed and there was the photo call with Deng Xiaoping and Thatcher, there were quite a lot of sort of unanswered questions. And one of the biggest ones was what was going to be the nationality status for Hong Kongers after the handover. Because, of course, Hong Kong was going from being a British overseas territory where everyone had a sort of variant of a British passport. Like So everyone's passport said, you know, British passport, Hong Kong on the front of it. Um, so there was a huge unanswered question of what was going to happen. And basically what the British government decided to do in 1990 was give 50,000 families in Hong Kong who were mostly the families of people like so sort of top civil servants, police officers, uh, sort of the, almost like the elite of Hong Kong society were all given British passports and everyone else would be eligible for something called a B&O passport, British National Overseas. And up until recently, a B&O passport was literally just a sort of 
a worthless piece of paper, really, to be honest, in that it didn't it was a British passport, but it didn't give you residency rights in the UK or the right to work or anything like that. Um, very little in the way of concrete benefits. But now um, in a, I've got to say it's, it's like I'm astonished that it actually sort of came to fruition in the end. Like If you'd have told me this time last year that the UK government would have done it, I would never have believed you. Uh, but basically now everyone who has a British national overseas passport and their dependent uh, family, so kids under 18, basically, which is basically around two thirds of the Hong Kong population, all in all, um, are now eligible to come to the UK. And, uh, you know, there's a path to citizenship that's been provided. Now, we're not going to see a sort of a mass exodus in the sense there's not going to be millions of people. But I think, you know, a couple of hundred thousand people are going to you know, follow through with it and actually leave. But it's it's almost like giving people sort of the ultimate insurance option where, even though it's fairly expensive and it's a long and drawn out process, etc., basically most people in Hong Kong now can basically come and settle in the UK. So it's a massive sort of game changing move, really. Right. So is that the UK government basically recognising then that essentially they're refugees, you know, of an authoritarian regime, if you like? Sort of, I guess. Um, and I think it's also like. I guess a recognition of the fact that what happened with regard to the sort of the entire creation of, you know, BNO passports was a just a disgrace, really, on a moral level. Um, nobody in Hong Kong ever voted for Chinese sovereignty to, you know, take over in 1997. And the fact that I think in those circumstances where your entire city is being given over without anyone having any say in Hong Kong, it was decided in Beijing and it was decided in London, right? In those circumstances, I think the only way in which it could have been in any way morally acceptable would be if you said to everyone in Hong Kong, right, as a sort of guarantee against your future, everyone's eligible for British citizenship. And they haven't quite gone that far and they never would. But um, what it's basically done is it's opened up, you know, the possibility for, as I say, most people in Hong Kong to come and settle in the UK. And it looks like um, some other Western countries, but particularly Taiwan, are basically looking like they're going to extend sort of eligibility to be pretty much close to anyone who wants to leave is going to be able to. Question of whether they could find a good job and stuff in like whatever country they managed to move to is a whole different question and things. But we're kind of rapidly approaching a situation where it looks like pretty much everyone who wants to leave is going to be able to do so, like in short. And have we any idea of how many people have left already? I mean, like... There was, I think, for the next when, when it was announced, like that you couldn't buy a flight for a few days and stuff. Um, but uh, I, I, I think it would be like a couple of thousand people, no more than that, because um, it's only really like the high-profile activists, like, and most of them haven't left, but like a few high-profile people have. But I think, like, um, I think the Foreign Office released an estimate where they said they estimate it's going to be like a quarter of a million people over. Can't remember how many years. I think maybe five years. I think that probably sounds about right. To be honest, like it will be a lot of people, but it's not going to be millions. Um, just because of the fact that yeah, even though I, I suspect millions of people want to. I mean, speaking to friends, I can tell you that's true. But you've got it like the entire process of like an international move. No guarantee of good employment in the UK. You're moving away from your family. Also, loads of people in Hong Kong. Like in our doc that we made. Do you remember the kid that we um, shot with Chung? Um, like it's a really big thing in Hong Kong how people basically massively underestimate their English skills. So like you know, um, it, it's a massive sort of thing of like if you basically just don't think your English is good enough, even though it probably is, you know, you'd be much more reluctant to like you know move to like you know whether it's the UK or ever. Um, so like I say, I suspect it's not going to be you know I'd be amazed if it's more than half a million over the next couple of years. But you know, and Hong Kong's a city of like six or seven million people depending on the number you use. So yeah, it's a significant number, but it's not. We're not going to see like a 
you know, half the population leave is my point. Yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about the like the historic deal that was made then that is kind of that led to the autonomy and is now leading to uh, essentially the destruction of that. Um, you know, the historical thing with Thatcher and uh, G. What, what was that all about? Well, so basically after Mao died, oh, because actually even before that, um, when Hong Kong, the first colony was set up in Hong Kong in the 1840s, it was just um, Hong Kong Island, which the analogy I would give is a bit like with sort of New York and Manhattan or central London versus you know, greater London, if you like. So it's the kind of it's part of the urban core, Hong Kong Island. Um, and then a couple of years later, um, the, they Britain took over the Kowloon Peninsula, which is basically that those two areas are like the entire urban core of Hong Kong, if you like. But then... In 1898, basically because of the fact that um, Bates sort of overcrowding, Britain leased the new territories for 99 years from China, uh, and the lease was set to expire in in 1997. And basically after Chairman Mao died, um, the British government recognised there's this massive unresolved issue of what's going to happen to Hong Kong after 1997. And, uh, you know, after Mao died, it was possible for sort of, you know, contact to open up with someone who wasn't a complete psychopath in charge of China, tentative moves were made and um, eventually basically what happened is Thatcher completely capitulated in the negotiations. Um, she accepted the red line of Chinese sovereignty over Hong Kong without too much fuss and um, you know there was all this talk of possibly like Chinese sovereignty and British administration but basically just Beijing just wasn't going to accept that and eventually Thatcher in the negotiations just accepted those red lines really uh, and you know to this day Hong Kong's suffering the consequences and bear it in mind as well that happened almost immediately after the Falklands War when she capitulated, which is just the most bizarre thing, really, because, like, you know, it was at a sort of height of her power, she, you know, completely, I guess you'd say, just, you know, capitulated in the negotiations, just utterly bizarre thing because you associate such strength with her, really. But, you know, there we are. Well, yeah, Thatcher, she was uh, known for just destroying communities. Um what what's going on now with the with the protest movement then? Because it's, I know you said that like peaceful protest has basically been cancelled, if you like. But you know, as as we both know, those protesters didn't particularly care about the laws before. Um, but I haven't seen any mobilisation really. Yeah. So like the the day it came into effect, there was um, some people sort of attempted a protest and stuff, and the police operation they had was just I can't even describe like how insane it was in terms of. Literally anyone who was just young was just being stopped and searched and loads of people just rounded up and arrested. Um, you know, this ridiculous security operation. But also because of the fact Hong Kong has had like a massive sort of second wave um, with the virus cases. Um, I'd be very surprised if anything happens um, in terms of like, you know, a return to sort of really significant protest before either there's a vaccine distributed or maybe if Hong Kong manages to stamp out virtually all cases again. Um, you know, I'd be surprised if that happened. But I think, you know, a return to sort of, you know, I might say extreme violence of some kind on the streets is pretty much inevitable, I think. Like anyone who thinks it's over, um, all I would say is like those scenes of like thousands of frontliners last year in like pitch battles with the police on the streets, those people haven't gone away. Do you know what I mean? They haven't, overwhelmingly, they're still in Hong Kong. Uh, they're, you know, hatred for the government and whatever hasn't died down at all. Um, and it will re-emerge at some point. It might take slightly different forms. It might descend into some kind of like almost urban guerrilla warfare. I mean, you know, all these kind of things are sort of open possibilities at this point. But uh, it's not over, that's for sure. It's definitely not over. Um, it's just a question of when this kind of thing will resume, really. 
That's interesting because I thought this was it. I thought, no, they're just, they realise there's nothing they can do now. Yeah, I mean, there's some resignation from a lot of people. But again, I just think the shit, you know, the, the, the process last year, there was sort of, it, no one would have thought what happened last year was possible until it kind of just happened, if you see what I mean. And it took the sort of the spark of the extradition bill to light everything up again. And I think that's the kind of thing, it's just, it just takes the sort of the next spark to just, because Hong Kong is just a massive sort of pile of, you know, timber at the moment. It's just waiting to be set alight again. And um, sooner or later, something will come along. As I say, most likely post-pandemic, it might be in like a year or so's time. Um, But yeah, like it's it's completely inevitable that something of that kind will resume. I mean, it's this isn't the sort of the end of sort of like processes we know it in Hong Kong. Things will reemerge. The question of like, is it going to go down? You know, really sort of like you know road that some people might sort of try and characterise as like even terrorism or something is is entirely possible. Like, I'm not talking sort of Northern Ireland or like IRA or anything like that. But I think it is likely that the actions that some people decide to take are going to be basically sort of portrayed by the authorities as being, you know, essentially sort of terrorism. They tried that already, but I think, you know, that that is probably going to be the mantra of whatever happens next, if you sort of catch my drift. I, I actually agree. Like, a lot of people have said to me, no, don't be ridiculous. But, I mean, I mean, I remember saying that, like, when the, when the protests first kind of started, I was like, oh, it's not like we're going to see Molotovs or anything. <laughs> and then within, like, three weeks, I was calling you up, like, whoa, what the fuck's going on? And then when we met them, it was very clear to me that they were all in. A lot of them were all in, you know what I mean? There was no deviation, there was no backing down. So I, I can see that. I mean, I'm sure, like, a load of them will peel off and just go, right, it's done, and they'll leave, or they'll just go back to life. But I, you know, I, I, I agree that I think maybe some of the the frontliners essentially will become, yeah, I mean, you don't know, man. They're smart kids and uh, and I'm sure they know how to create a bomb or, or whatever. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I really don't think that it's that far-fetched to think that could happen considering the level of, like, authoritarianism that is already drawing in um, on Hong Kong. What, what exactly do you think uh, Hong Kong will become like? Do you think that it's just going to become the same as Beijing in terms of like the laws and the authoritarianism and the surveillance or do you think something different well it's 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 sort of it's it's a really hard one in the sense that like um there's so many cliches that are thrown around over the last few months about the sort of like the big one is sort of like Hong Kong is dead like I've seen this written so many times in like loads of different sort of things and it's like you know obviously it's obvious to see what people are getting at but there's one cliche that's repeated all the time that is actually really absolutely accurate which is that the authorities in Beijing basically want to turn Hong Kong into any other Chinese city that's exactly what their vision is exactly but the problem is is that there's nothing that they can really do to sort of change the fact that Hong Kong isn't in the sense that you know Hong Kongers overwhelmingly use Cantonese as their first language which isn't mutually intelligible with Mandarin so you've got a massive you know distinction there if you like culturally um, you know, it, it's there's just so many different ways in which Hong Kong is just sort of culturally and, and so many other ways distinct from mainland China. And in terms of like what's going to happen and like where Hong Kong will be in sort of five years' time, yeah, you know, it's not going to become a city of sort of Mandarin speakers, or you know, it's it's not going to be on a sort of societal level much more integrated with mainland China. There's not really you know, even if the authorities plan the sort of like mass immigration move where they tried to move loads of mainlanders into Hong Kong which probably wouldn't happen but I guess in theory they could try something like that I mean it's it's never really gonna like you you know you can't you can't sort of beat people into um 
into loving your government. Do you know what I mean? It's it's it, the, the, ultimately people's sort of um, people's how they respond and how they feel about the regime isn't going to change because of any actions it takes, unless there's a concession made, which is just never going to happen. Obviously, they've been clear from the start. Like there's, there was never going to be any kind of like accommodation or anything. So like, yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to sort of say what exactly Hong Kong is going to look like in five or ten years' time. And I think it will feel more like a, more like one of the cities, you know, big cities in the mainland. But at the same time, I, I just don't see that sort of, like, really big distinction, you know, di- dissolving away. It, I, just, I just, you know, there's too much of a distinction to be made at this point in time for, the, for it to just sort of disappear anytime soon. Mm, yeah, I mean... They've been pretty upfront, right? I mean, well, maybe let's talk about it. What What is the CCP? What have they actually said about this situation themselves officially? Well, officially, I mean, the national security law is what it says on the tin. It's it's been invoked because of threats to national security, as opposed to it being a mass sort of political purge. Um, and you know, the, I think there was an interesting thing, and I don't know who actually said this. I think it was a an anonymous quote from an article I read ages ago. But I was thinking about it earlier, where he said. The difference between mainland China and Hong Kong has always been that in Hong Kong, you've never had to fear the sort of the knock on the door in the middle of the night, if you get what I mean. You've never sort of had to fear being spirited away, you know, under darkness or whatever. Whereas in mainland China, that sort of happened you know, pretty much well before even the CCP came into power. Um, but yeah, um, and a sort of a, I mean, another analogy I'd say that everyone in Hong Kong pretty much knows the feeling of is... Um, you know, when you cross the border into mainland China, like I did, after we finished filming our doc, I, I went over to the mainland to like buy some cheap clothes and stuff. And you always have this sort of feeling of when you come back to Hong Kong over the land border, it's just this sort of like sigh of relief, even if you haven't done anything political in the past or you're not a journalist or anything like that. It's just this feeling of sort of lightness of like, oh, well, you're kind of safe again and nothing's going to happen to you, blah, blah. And that has just gone now. You know what I mean? That is something which is now a sort of, you know, I wouldn't feel any any safer you know, being in Hong Kong right now than I would if I was living in mainland China, to be honest. You know, I, I don't, I think that sort of, that feeling of of security and of, you know, the sense that, oh, the law will protect you and you're protected from like, you know, arbitrary arrests and all that kind of thing, that has just gone. So I suppose in one sense, like, you know, in terms of integrating Hong Kong with mainland China, that is something that has happened. Um, but the really interesting thing, and I've seen a lot of people talk about this, is the question of actually, it is entirely possible in a couple of years' time that Hong Kong could really be sort of forced down the road of like Xinjiang and Tibet, where actually there is less political freedom in Hong Kong than in the than in your average mainland city. And that is just if you'd have told me this time last year that that was something that even people would be talking about as a serious possibility, I'd have told you you've been you know fucking crazy to be honest. And just the fact that that is a genuine possibility now that Hong Kong could become you know some kind of like you know counterpart or you know sort of zombified sibling of like you know Xinjiang and Tibet in terms of the kind of oppression we see I mean it's just it, it's it's it is a sort of total nightmare vision but it's entirely possible now well I would have disagreed with you as well like a couple months ago but seeing seeing how fast everything happened the speed yeah the speed yeah and then now I, I mean this morning even I was reading about the AI and the surveillance state in Beijing and I mean, frankly, it's absolutely wild what they're trying to do. They're, they're literally trying to kind of stoke out um, or, or stamp out political dissent kind of before it happens. So like they want to like start monitoring 
they, you know, there's technology where they're considering how to monitor people's facial expressions based on how they read certain propaganda. Like, does that tell them that they don't like that? If so, they'll be put on a system. Like, uh, and this isn't just Xinjiang. I mean, it's been tested in Xinjiang, which is essentially a laboratory for, you know, the CCP authoritarian um, dreams, I guess, of how to get even harder on the people. But it is going to happen elsewhere and it is happening in Beijing. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's a scary prospect, man. So I, I don't think it's too outrageous what you're saying. Um, talking about people that are, you know, people are getting oppressed. Um, the young lad Wilson there, the lad we met, really nice guy, journalist over in Hong Kong. He was arrested, right? Um, I know you can't really talk too much, but um, maybe explain to us what happened and, you know, what he went through. Yeah, so I just before I was helping with, um, actually, a, 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 I can't go into specifically what we're doing, but um, I was speaking to some journalists instead of a press conference, and literally three minutes before we were due to start on Zoom, a notification fl- popped up on my Facebook, and it was just, Wilson arrested, NatSec Law, you know, no other info, and it's just a friend saying, and I just literally, I almost felt like I'd been shot or something, because um, to give you a sense of what he's like, what Wilson is... He's not high profile at all. Like, so he's he's had involvement with sort of activist things and stuff. Um, and he now works as a freelancer for ITV. And ironically, like the the, the ITV producer, um, I know her in Hong Kong, and she um, she asked me like, do you know anyone who'd be like a good fixer or like researcher for us and stuff? And I recommended Wilson, and that's how he got that sort of gig. Um, but yeah, um, Wilson like he's he, he he has phenomenal contacts in terms of like he he knows everyone um, in the sort of pro democracy movement and stuff. Um, but he's always been very sort of backroom. Like he's had no, no profile at all. And what he's accused of is basically running a, um, a social media group um, that is basically, it's, it translates as I want Lam Chow. And Lam Chow is basically this idea of, it's usually translated as like burn with us strategy, which is basically, this is one of the things that the authorities have basically said violates the national security law. The irony is I can say publicly that he doesn't run that group. So... Um, you know, as to what's going to happen if, if he gets charged and brought to trial, we don't know. Um, but, you know, it's it, some of these cases will just fall apart in court because even though the national security law is totally draconian, it is being sort of like fused with, you know, Hong Kong's existing legal system, which is actually, even with the, the, you know, the things that have happened in the last year, is still largely sort of intact for now. So anyone charged under the national security law, as long as they're not sent to the mainland, which is a provision under it for certain cases... Um, everyone tried in Hong Kong will basically get a fair trial under the law. Right, but I mean, I mean, come on, they they can change that. Yeah, and I know. Yeah, what I mean is like the the, the point is like the, the judges who will be presiding over this, even though the chief executive does pick the judges who'll be presiding over it, they're not these like CCP shills and stuff. If you sort of mean, so I suspect in the initial few cases, um, th- you know, people will be getting due process and everything, but. If um, if the law isn't delivering the results that Beijing wants, they can just send down an interpretation from the uh, NPC Standing Committee like that, and they so they can basically harden the legislation as and when they want to at any time they're choosing because it's a it's been introduced into the actual constitution of Hong Kong, the basic law, and uh, the ultimate power of interpretation is held with a body in Beijing, not in Hong Kong. So no court in Hong Kong has sort of ultimate power of interpretation over the national security law essentially so um as i say i think some of these cases i mean like we've had people charged with rioting in hong kong 
um, who weren't even present at the event that the police have alleged that they were rioting at. And of course, they fell apart within minutes, these trials and stuff. And I suspect we're going to see some of those cases in the national security law as well, because prosecution services running all over the shop. They've got thousands of people they want to charge with offences, but they don't have the resources to be able to do it, basically. So we're going to see a lot of high profile cases which will fall apart. I just hope with Wilson's that's what happens if he gets charged. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I suspect down the line, though, we're going to see you know, with regards to national security law, due process will probably just disappear completely with it. But for now, people will largely at least probably be getting sort of a fair trial and things, even though the law is horrendously draconian and stuff, they will at least be able to have like, you know, as I say, a fair trial. But um, we'll see what happens to that in the future. So he's basically just been charged with running an activist account. Well, he hasn't been charged yet, but um, I believe that's that's what the well, I mean, that's what media reported. I spoke to him briefly and stuff, and um, that was what he was questioned about in custody. But um, you know, it's 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 unclear yet whether they'd want to sort of try and invoke other staff or anything. You know, it's it's just impossible to say. But as it stands, like that was basically the reason why he was arrested, and the uh, the specific um, article under the. Security law that he was arrested under was collusion with foreign forces. Um, that was what basically he was arrested for, which is just you know mad, obviously. But, um, but yeah, there we are. Um, and and it's retro, it's retroactive, right? I mean, I, I think someone was saying to me that like you know because we did our film, if I come back there, I could be arrested for filming with the activists before this even came in. Completely. I mean, in, you know, it is it is retroactive, so um, you know anyone can be. You know, charged with anything they've done at any point in time, and it's also it's um it's extraterritorial as well. So they're claiming universal jurisdiction, which means that anyone anywhere in the world, regardless of whether you've set foot in Hong Kong or not, can be charged. Um, which is just you know the complete. It's it's just you know it's an it's an utterly ludicrous sort of piece of legislation, but um it's it's deadly serious. It's it's real. It's been implemented. It was railroaded through. Um, Hong Kong's institutions, or rather it wasn't actually, it was just directly implemented by Beijing. Um, they didn't even go through LegCo. Uh, but yeah, so, um, you know, but it's, as I say, we can des- we can describe all these, you know, all these things about it and stuff, but at the end of the day, it's, it's already been implemented now. So, you know, the effects of it are going to become very real for some people very quickly. Um, and, I, you know, we just have to sort of see how the trials will proceed and stuff. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, Jack, I just want to talk briefly about the um, very annoying white police officers that work for the CCP in Hong Kong <laughs> and the scandal um, that has happened to them. Let's talk about that. What happened? Okay, yeah. So um, basically, for people who don't know, um, the Hong Kong police used to be dominated in terms of the senior officers with literally white British police officers. Um, and uh, now, um, even though there's only about 50 of them left in the force, some of the most senior officers, so three of the six regional commanders um, in the force, which is one of the most senior ranks, three of the six um, are literally white British guys. Um, and uh, they've had like loads of sort of grief over the last few months because they're so they stand out so much like so they're almost like they are kind of celebrities essentially and basically they've been building loads of illegal extensions on their homes most of which are on government land anyway uh, because they've got like you know sweetheart property deals and all that also Rupert Dover the most famous one turns out he built an illegal extension on his house rented it out on Airbnb and not only that he wasn't even allowed to be living in the house as has been I, I believe um, Land's department is still investigating it and he's claiming it was like 
um, for his wife's family because it, it was basically these houses were built for um, for people who were made homeless from uh, a typhoon that happened a couple of decades ago. Um, but basically, like, uh, the question was raised, like, why are you living there when the deed is non-transferable? I mean, he's alleged it's like his wife's family or something. Um, and yeah, and now they're also facing a private prosecution in the UK um, on charges of torture. So we're going to see how that all plays out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's just been a massive personal embarrassment to them. It made like this was like front page news and everything a few months ago. So uh, yeah, just pretty funny to see them, you know, publicly humiliated essentially. <laughs> what's um, torture? What's that case? Um, yeah, so um, a guy called Luke de Paulford, who is um, a, I guess you say sort of activist, but also like um, has worked in human rights stuff for a long time. Basically, there's um, going to be a private prosecution launched against uh, certain unnamed senior British Hong Kong police officers. Um, and basically, the allegation is that they have presided over torture of people in custody. Uh, there's been a sort of call outs for evidence and things. Um, and you know, as as to how that will proceed to court, it's unclear. Uh, but if they're you know if they're found guilty under this, eventually, then um, they would basically either have to come and serve a sentence in the UK, or um, they would have like an Interpol red notice issued against them or anything else. So you know, um, yeah. But clearly, like in terms of like the because of the fact they're regional commanders, in theory, you could argue that something that happens within the region of you know if if someone gets tortured or whatever in 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 that region. You know, you could hold them responsible. So, um, you know, we just have to see how that sort of plays out. But under British law, uh, torture is a the UK claims universal jurisdiction. So, if you're a British national, uh, you can be charged with torture if you've committed it anywhere in the world uh, under British law. So, you know, there's, it, it's sort of the, the legal basis for this is not sort of frivolous. It's it's sound. So, we'll sort of see what happens on that. But um, it will be probably quite a long time before that comes back in the news due to court dates or anything. But we'll see. And and this is based on um, the the treatment of detained uh, protesters in Hong Kong. Primarily, yeah. Jesus. All right, mate. Um, tell uh, tell us your your social media where people can get hold of you and, and see your work. Uh sure. Um, so I'm Jack H Hazelwoods on Twitter, spelled L E. So J A C K H H A Z L E Wood. Um, and yeah, that's worth. I'm only, I only really do Twitter. I don't really do any other sort of social media and stuff. Cool, man. All right, thanks very much, Jack. Cheers. That was Jack Hazelwood speaking about the legal stranglehold that the CCP has put over the autonomous region of Hong Kong. Not looking like it's autonomous anymore, unfortunately. Um, if you like what we're doing at Popular Front, please, as usual, consider subscribing to our Patreon supporters there. $5 a month, you get bonus episode. $10 a month, you get early access to new episodes. You get the bonus episodes as well. You get access to the community Discord. You get access to the educational series we're doing, Too Cool for J School. Uh, you get... Um discount codes for the merchandise which you can buy at www.popularfront.shop check us out on all those things the more we grow on the patreon the more popular front grows this is all independent all grassroots uh, this episode was sponsored by oracle coffee shop in portland oregon usa they're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products see them at 3875 southwest bond avenue 97239 tell them popular front sent you the episode is also sponsored by Grind Core House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA, one in South, one in West. Check them out on social media at Grind Core House and then go down and see them. Tell them Popular Front Center, as usual. 
the episode is also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and informing people about historical conflict propaganda. Get prints at propagandopolis.com and use the code POPULARFRONT10 to get 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by Black Triangle, an independent company selling self-defense tools. Check them out at blacktriangle.com, but it's spelled B-L-K triangle.com. Check them out. Tell them Popular Front sent you. Um, like I said, please subscribe to us on the Patreon as well. You get loads more uh, bonus content there. Patreon.com slash Popular Front. Social medias, follow us on Twitter popular front co mine is at jake underscore hanrahan h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n the instagram is at popular dot front the youtube youtube.com slash popular front uh, and that's everything i think check out our website popularfront.co everything is collated there i do need to update it um but yeah thank you very much to the following high tier patreons they are k hardy roberts alexander nicholas butter ron swanson jd jav Bastidi, Bastian Gamilla Ritmeyer, Ian Froese, James Colley, Michael Akakan, Ethan Reyes, Fitz Madrid, Joe Watt, Alex Northrop, Ed Coulthard, Johnny LaFleur, Clayton Taylor, Hugo Newski, Maxwell Burke, Anthony Kabarak, Mike Barone, Don Wayne, Scott Hopton, Liam Williams, Fragile Feeling, Chris Cusimano, Sebastian from the Discord, Degenerate Zero Alpha, DR, Trey Nance, Charlie, Olin Thorne, Amy Rupert, Rubicon, Prashant Singh, Azad, Frank Austin, Amelia Mee, Christina Rivetti, Moody Al Rashid, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Ari from the Discord, Young Wasabi, Sarushe Hawazi, Tony Bin, Adam Berg Snyder, sorry, Scartoon Music, Stephen Devila, Patrick Bronte, Dan Dunham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Gorvanek, Q-Ball, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, and Joanne Stocker. Thank you all so much. Really appreciate your support. If you guys vanished, then Popular Front, frankly, would vanish as well. So thanks so much. If people want to support us, patreon.com slash popularfront or popularfront.co slash support. One of the others. Um, Yeah. Uh, music in this episode the intro was by home and the outro was by sam black aka son of old check his music out at samblackpf.com we're trying to work out how to do a uh, vinyl kind of a one-off um thing put it on sale um we might be using crates i don't know but anyway we're gonna work all that out but yeah check us out popularfront.co